Well, here in Hebrews 8 and 9, uh, the idea of uh, being focused upon Jesus continues, and we've made the point that these Hebrew people to whom the, the, uh, the writer is uh, addressing this had believed in Jesus some years before he's writing to them, and the reality of him as a person had somehow slipped from them. And so he's trying to stir them up, and we've suggested that, in fact, the whole of Hebrews is really the transcript of some sort of homily or sermon or exhortation that was given at the breaking of bread, because the focus is so clearly upon the body and blood of Jesus, and it's therefore ideally relevant to, to us, who, who surely also need to be stirred up to uh, refocus ourselves upon, upon the Lord. And so all the way through, all that he says here in Hebrews, it's as it were speaking directly to us, we who would surely admit that we need to be stirred up and more focused and refocused time and again upon the Lord Jesus. So starting off in Hebrews 8 verse 1 there, he says that we have such a high priest who is set down on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. And he talks about 12 times in Hebrews of how Jesus is seated, that he's not like those high priests who stood and ministered, but that he is seated. And yet we, we think about the incident when Stephen died in Acts 7, and he has this vision at the end of it, and he sees the Lord Jesus there in, uh, in Acts 7 standing, standing, uh, as it were, at the right-hand side of God in heaven, uh, mediating for him. And so we, we notice that, uh, that kind of uh, contrast there between how he saw, that's Acts 7.56, he saw heaven opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God and how Hebrews emphasizes that he is actually sitting. And I think the point we take from that is that the Lord Jesus there in heaven is not, as it were, seated and just doing a, a job, rather like uh, someone who is translating literature or conversations from one language to another, and just uh, doing a, 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 almost a pin-pushing job without emotion and without passion, but that the Lord Jesus in heaven is actually actively passionate for our cause. When he saw Stephen in Stephen's greatest time of need and his time of dying, he stands up. He's so caught up in the need to mediate for Stephen. And so the Lord Jesus in heaven is actively involved right now in mediating for us. And in our prayers he is doing that and we therefore should take a serious look at how serious we are in our prayer life, whether we pray to God as we're drifting off to sleep at night. Uh, and again, you know, there's maybe nothing wrong with that in itself, uh, but we can very easily slip down to the lowest kind of common denominator in this, think, yeah, well, that's okay to pray quickly with your eyes open, Nehemiah did that, therefore I can do that. Yes, we can, uh, and we should, but the point is that there is also an element to prayer that is sober and serious and calculated, just as calculated as the incense being prepared very carefully before it was offered, incense uh, representing our prayers. And so Jesus is not passive, and the fact that he is so active in sensitivity to our situation on earth should, I think, inspire us in our, in our prayer life. And so he goes on to talk, uh, verse 10, about the covenant that has been made with us. And again, I perceive there uh, a relevance to the theme of the breaking of bread, because 
the cup which we take is the cup of the new covenant. And so it's appropriate that in Hebrews he talks about not only the body and blood of Jesus so much, but also the covenant. So he talks there about how in the Old Testament God promised Israel that ultimately, and I think this is uh, when Christ returns, he will make a new covenant with Israel, not like the first covenant he made in Egypt, but a new covenant that involves, verse 10, putting my laws into their mind and writing them in their hearts. And I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. So the new covenant actually involves an element of God doing something on the human heart. It's not simply um, giving people uh, eternal inheritance of some land. And yet, the new covenant is based around the promises made to Abraham. And you may say, well, what did God say to Abraham about that? Surely he just told him that you will be blessed and you will have eternal inheritance of the land. And by baptism, Galatians 3, that becomes true of us. And yet, it depends how we understand this word blessing. And in Acts 3, 25 and 26, Peter invites us to see blessing, the blessing promised to Abraham, as not simply everlasting life on earth in the, in the land promised to Abraham. He says, God has sent his son to bless you in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. So then, the blessing is not simply even forgiveness. It is forgiveness. But it is a turning away of people from their sins. Now, that opens a... Uh, a far wider kind of concept of God working in human lives and hearts to turn us away from sin, maybe taking uh, sinful temptations and situations out of our path, maybe uh, bringing us positively into contact with people who can strengthen us and encourage us in the way, um, all sorts of things. Him putting his word into our mind and heart and writing it there in our conscience. Now, all this, then, was prefigured in the promises made to Abraham about this blessing that was to come upon all those who would be part of the seed, that is, the Lord Jesus. And we know we do that by baptism and by, uh, by abiding in Christ. And so, reading on here, <clears throat> here in Hebrews 8, the covenant is to do with laws and God's word being written in minds and hearts, and he says in verse 11 that they will not have to tell each other to know the Lord, for all shall know me, for, verse 12, and that is the crucial word, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. And so the new covenant involves, yes, mercy to our unrighteousness and our sins, our sins not being remembered any more, and therefore us knowing the Lord. It's not a case of knowing the Lord because someone else told you to know the Lord, that's what he's saying in verse 11. It's all about the fact that we know God because he has been merciful to our sin. So then, if we are baptized into Jesus, and we are counted as righteous, we are declared right, we are justified in him, all our sin is forgiven, and therefore we know the Lord. And this is a very personal thing, I think that's what he's saying, it's very personal. It's not that someone else can nudge you and say, hey, know the Lord. 
It's not that you know God by holding a series of true theological propositions about him of the kind you might find in a statement of faith. You can intellectually know those things, and I'm not saying they are without importance and significance in the bigger picture. But here he's defining knowing the Lord as being a relationship, that we know him insofar as we know that our sin is forgiven, we know that it is not remembered anymore, verse 12, and therefore we have this freedom before him, this cleansed conscience, which he's going to talk about in chapter 9, and that is to know the Lord. And all this was then part of that new covenant. And the new covenant which God is going to make with Israel at Christ's return has been made with us. And the cup of the covenant which we take is the cup which celebrates that covenant. It's not as if you sip that that wine, you drink of that cup and therefore kind of something magical happens. It is a cup of celebration. Just as in a worldly way people may drink, uh, raise a cup in memory of something, in celebration of a birthday or something or other. And so what we are doing as we raise that cup and drink from it is to celebrate that covenant that has already been made. That covenant was made with us right back when God made those promises about eternal blessing to to Abraham. And yet the death of Jesus, we know, confirmed that covenant. That doesn't mean that it suddenly uh, sprung into operation when he died. I think that what it means is that he died in order to demonstrate to us the reality of the the final truth, of the, the sober fact that really all our sins are forgiven and we really will inherit eternal life in God's kingdom. And in fact, if one had thought through the implications of God offering Abraham and his seed eternal life, uh, an eternal inheritance of the land, the thoughtful Israelite, I think, would have perceived that the wages of sin is death, I have sinned, so therefore that promise of eternal inheritance of the land must therefore involve forgiveness of sin, and therefore the promised blessing must therefore be the forgiveness of sin. Now, when we looked at uh, Hebrews chapter 6, I spoke about how God, as it were, went out of his way to try to persuade us that this is all for real, and he did that through the cross. And in Romans, Paul says, puts it another way, he says that God commends his love to us, in that Christ died for our sins. It's not, if you see what I mean, that without that red blood, that red liquid, Uh, poured out on the cross, God could not have forgiven. Because we know that's not the case, because God forgave people in Old Testament times. Uh, David, for example, without sacrifice, without red blood, without anything. Of course, he can forgive as he wishes. But he has chosen to arrange it in the way that he did, so that the very public death of his son would persuade and convince us that really, that simple promise that he made to Abraham of eternal life on earth and the blessing associated with it of uh, forgiveness of sin and uh, reconciliation with him, that that is for real. And in Hebrews 6, he says that God made this promise, verse 13 of Hebrews 6, 
uh, to Abraham, and because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. But then he goes even further. He decides to give an oath to confirm that promise to Abraham. That's verse 16. Because God was willing, 17, more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his purpose. He confirmed it by an oath that by two unchangeable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled into Christ the city of refuge. So those two immutable things are the, the promise, the promise to Abraham made by himself, sworn by himself, and the oath of confirmation. Now, what actually confirmed the promises to Abraham? According to Romans 15, it was the death of Jesus. And so that was, in a sense, the, the, the oath, the, the confirmation, but not in the sense that it made the promises to Abraham suddenly uh, become operable, suddenly become uh, actual, actual and uh, for real. They were already. But the oath, that is the confirmation of the promise, was really in the blood of Jesus to just underline if you like to ask very strongly that for sure God is going to give us this great salvation and it's so tragic that we are so slow to believe this and if we really believe that for sure I will live forever that for sure all my sin and dysfunction has been forgiven that really my sin is not a barrier to my eternal inheritance of, of the land, uh, of, of God's kingdom, and I really will live forever. You know, if we really believed that, and we may say we really believe it, but if you really believed it fully, and there's levels of faith, uh, and if you had the highest level of faith in that, uh, your life, my life, would be very different. I mean, our entire focus would be upon him. Uh, and would be upon the things of that kingdom. That would be our total and entire focus. We would be full of joy and peace through believing, etc., uh, etc. Et and yet, we're so slow and dysfunctional to believe that. And yet, this is the significance of drinking this cup of the covenant, that we are celebrating the fact that that basic promise that was given right at the beginning of biblical history that you and your seed will live forever, have an internal inheritance of the earth, and the associated blessing that goes with that, or forgiveness of sin, and uh, as he's defined here in more detail, turning away every one of us from our iniquities through the means of him putting his word into our hearts, him doing something within the human mind, that we are so slow to believe but by drinking this cup we are celebrating the fact that that is for real and we, we examine ourselves quite naturally um, as to not as to whether I am worthy of that because it's the whole point is that this is a, a covenant cup by, by absolute grace for us um, and if you believe that if you can believe it then you will go forward, as he says in chapter 9, with a cleansed conscience. What does that mean, verse 14? How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? 
He's saying that the blood of Christ, the fact that he died for us, and that we have believed into him, and that this is all true for us, this means that we would not have any more conscience about our dead works, that we will no longer feel bad about sin. That is not to say that we are arrogant up ourselves, proud, uh, not recognizing our sinfulness, none of those things. No. But on the other hand, if we still have uh, a guilty conscience about what he calls dead works, works that are over and gone, then we <laughs> are somehow not believing what has been done for us. And he says that our conscience has been purged so that we might serve the living God. In other words, if you really believe that all your sin is forgiven to the point that you do not in that sense have a conscience about it, then you can and will be empowered to serve God in a way that you would not be able to otherwise. Now, this idea of uh, the conscience being purged to the point that past sins uh, don't, as it were, uh, weigh in on our conscience, I bring before you two examples of, of people who I think really did uh, get the message. One is David with his sin with Bathsheba, because when you read the last words of David, he talks as if he has always been upright before God. He says, I have been upright before you. Uh, this is in 2 Samuel 23. And he's, well, if it wasn't that he believed for sure in the total extent of God's forgiveness, you would say that he was arrogant. And I don't get the impression that David, for all his undoubted failures, was, uh, was arrogant. I wouldn't say that about him. Uh, I would say that he had a very deep sense of sin. And it was, in fact, because of that deep sense of personal sin and that deep sense of God's forgiveness that therefore he can say with absolute meaning, I am upright before him. And he talks there as if he's had a sort of a wonderful spiritual life, in his last words. Um, and yet, well, clearly David hadn't had such a wonderful spiritual life. There's all sorts of failures in his life. And yet he really believed that they were forgiven, to the point that he did not have a conscience in that sense about them. His conscience was purged from dead works. The other person is Paul. Now, time and again, he says, when he's on trial, that he has lived with a pure conscience before God. Uh, right up to this day, he says. And he sets himself up, quite shamelessly, as an example to Timothy and to uh, a number of the churches that he writes to, as if he's saying that, you know, I am your pattern. And you think, wait a minute, Paul. Uh, you, 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 had, uh, you had your demons, you had your weaknesses, you had your sins, you're only human, you must have had sins even though we don't read about them, uh, plus you murdered and tortured and all the rest of it, all those Christians. And the only way that he could write in the way that he does about his good conscience before God is if he understood the truth of what is written here, that the blood of Christ purges our conscience from dead works and therefore this empowers us to serve the living God so then <clears throat> every time we, we break bread 
we are, as it were, reminding ourselves of this, this covenant that's been, been made. Look at Hebrews 9, verse 20. And he says uh, that when the, the, the old covenant was uh, inaugurated, he took the blood, verse 19, of calves and of goats, uh, and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has enjoined unto you. And he's actually quoting there, and you can scribble down, or is alluding to, Matthew 26:28 about the breaking of bread, where Jesus says, This is the blood of the covenant. So then, that's another indicator that what we're reading here is in fact very relevant to the, the breaking of bread. And one could possibly imagine at that point, at uh, the point of Hebrews 9.20, the speaker of these words taking the cup and saying, this is the blood of the covenant, quoting Matthew 26.28, the, the very words of Jesus. So then, we are not, as it were, entering that covenant when we break bread, but we are celebrating the fact that, really, this covenant has been what he calls enjoined unto you. That we are covered within that covenant, that it applies to us. And that, really, all this is also wonderfully true for us. And so he, he goes on there in Hebrews 9 to say, verse 28, that Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Now this is an allusion to the day of atonement where the people stood outside praying and confessing their sin and then uh, the high priest appeared to that humbled and repentant Israel on the day of atonement and pronounced them forgiven. Having, uh, the high priest having offered the, uh, the sacrifices for their atonement. And so he says, 28, that Christ was once offered. Not every year, as they did at the day of atonement, but once, once and for all, he was offered for our sins, to bear our sins, this again is, is the language of the, uh, the, the, the goats on the Day of Atonement, and unto them that look for him, he will appear the second time without sin unto salvation. So there is a connection between the fact that Christ died for us to take away our sins, and our looking expectantly for his appearing. Because he will appear with the final uh, declaration of our forgiveness. So then, he's uh, suggesting here, I think, a very positive view that we should have towards the second coming of Jesus. That we are positive for his coming, and for that uh, day of judgment, because, in fact, in Jewish uh, thinking, the day of atonement was called the day of judgment. Um, but they were looking positively forward to the appearing of the high priest. Why? Because it was the, the final declaration of their forgiveness. So then, insofar as we believe clearly and, and strongly that Jesus died for me, we can therefore look forward so positively to his return. And I think that it can be, uh, from conversations with, uh, with believers, it seems to me it often is, 
that people are maybe a little bit enthusiastic about what they would call signs of the times, Bible prophecy fulfilling, but there is a sort of the brake light that goes on, the brakes go on. Wow, I'm going to meet Jesus. And there is, for many, I fear, that sense that there is a question mark over their eternal destiny, and that the Day of Judgment is therefore an enigma. We don't know what's going to happen. Will I be saved? Will I not? How is it all going to work out? Is Jesus going to be as soft and uh, cuddly and uh, gentle as he seems to be sometimes, or is he going to be as hard and harsh and judgmental as he seems to be sometimes, as God seems to be sometimes? What is going to happen? And yet, that should not be the case with us. That, insofar as we really believe that he died for us and that I have identified myself with him, I have said yes to him with, uh, with both hands, and I have been baptized into him, and I have uh, staked my life on him, then we should look forward enthusiastically to his return, just as in many of the Psalms. David can't wait for the Day of Judgment. He can't wait for God's final manifestation of himself in the earth, which is how he, I guess, would have understood what we understand as the, the second coming of Christ. So then, <clears throat> this is why there is, I think, a connection between the breaking of bread and the second coming. Obviously, do this in remembrance of me until I come. We do this until he comes. There is that line of continuity between us now, as we think of him, and as we take this symbol of, of this covenant that has been made with us, that it is enjoined unto us, that we see again the certainty of the, uh, the oath, uh, making the, the basic promise to Abraham true for us, uh, there's a continuity between that and the fact that we shall meet him at the day of judgment. And it's interesting that Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 talks about the breaking of bread as happening when you are gathered together. And yet he elsewhere uses that idea and even those words about our final gathering together unto Jesus. In Thessalonians, I beseech you by Jesus and by our gathering together unto him. And yet he says in 1 Corinthians 11 that you break bread when you are gathered together. So our gathering together, whether it's virtual, whether it's online, whether it's in our own minds, whether it's in, in physical attendance at uh, the ecclesia, at, at the gathering of the believers, we are gathered together now, and that is, in essence, what's going to happen when Jesus comes back, and we are all, in a more literal sense, gathered together. And we are declared now saved, and we therefore are waiting with impatience, with enthusiasm, for his return to, as it were, physically declare and manifest 